This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Often, our most painful experiences can become the catalyst to our purpose in life. This has never been more true than for our next guest, James Lollicado. James is a director and co-founder of Pride Cup Australia, a national movement that exists to challenge LGBTI plus discrimination within sporting clubs. He's also been named Australian Community Leader of the Year. For James, being one of the only openly gay students in his high school, PE class was an isolating and tumultuous experience. But thankfully, his story doesn't end there. He resolved to turn his struggle into strength and make sporting organisations more inclusive and safe for LGBTI plus youth. I'm so excited for you to hear James boldly share his experiences in high school, how he found the confidence to fight for LGBTI plus inclusion, and how we too can forge meaning from our greatest struggles. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant James Lollicato. James, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Look, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the awesome stuff you're doing um, in the diversity and inclusion space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Of course. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So my name's James and I'm the director of Pride Cup Australia. So Pride Cup Australia basically runs LGBTI themed games in sporting organisations and associations across Australia. Um, We recently launched kind of a national wide approach from just the Victorian base. So now what we're doing is seeing games all across Australia, 155 games played across Australia, just to celebrate LGBTI inclusion and diversity. Yes. Oh my goodness, I love that. I when I started, look, I love hearing back because I've done so much research on you. <laughs> um, but 
before we dive deeper into Pride Cup and your business, Mm -hmm. I want to start with a question Mm -hmm. that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up Mm -hmm. and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? I think that's a good question because for me, I grew up in Melbourne, in Melbourne, um, pretty affluent suburb, went to a, a fairly good Roman Catholic school. Um, had great parents, always had great parents. I mean, the struggle for me growing up was the fact that I was gay um, and I knew nobody else who was gay. My school had never had an openly gay student, so I was the first there. I was the first person to come out of my family. I was the first person, first gay person that I knew of. Um, so I think that it was really interesting, or it is really interesting about where I grew up had such an effect on where I currently am now. So um, I grew up, as I said, in a Roman Catholic school and Having to come out when I was at about 16, 17, I was instantly thrown into a spotlight within the school whereby everybody knew who I was because I was the only gay kid at the school. Um, And luckily I had very supportive parents and very forgiving parents who just wanted me to to live my true life and be my authentic self, but the school was very different than that. So um, I remember in school I was bullied fairly rapidly in... PE class only, um, and the rest of school was pretty good, and they were all okay, but in PE class and in sport class, and my school was very sport-focused, um, I, I copped such bad abuse that I just gave up sport altogether. And that was really the pinnacle to starting or to being where I am today. I find it, thank you so much for sharing that with us, I find it so interesting how the founder kind of came to do what they do, you know, and now you're making such an impact, but it's, you know, it either comes from a really painful time or a time where it's just, there is some drive to make some, some change. There's just something that's pulling that person to make a change. And obviously for you, it was the personal experience you had and all the, the struggle that you went through. What talk us through how you dealt with that time and then through to university like how did you kind of stick to your guns and go you know what I'm gonna just gonna be me I mean it it was hard it Mm. was really really hard I I didn't stick to my guns a lot of the time so from year 10 to the first year of university probably I gave up sport altogether for me that was the one place where I was copying so much abuse so much vilification just for who I was and even if it wasn't directly at me words like fag poof homo were thrown around this all boys school more than any other words that you could think of and they were never pulled up on so for me that was it may have not been a direct a direct kind of attack at me but how was I meant to know that it was even hearing those words that were ingrained to say every time cut me down because even to those who didn't know I was out how was I ever meant to tell them when that was something that obviously affected their life so much that they could make jokes about it that I didn't want to tell them who I really was Um, But for me, like I said, I gave up sport because that was the easiest option for me. It was if if I was to give up sport and go sit in the library and read Harry Potter, nobody could say anything to me. Um, And even though when I went home, everything was good, my family life was great, my parents were really good, they kind of just agreed that I should quit sport and should quit altogether. Um, So I missed a lot of the benefits that I saw, especially in people like my twin brother, that he was getting... Um, for, by staying in sport and he was healthy, he was fit, I wasn't. Um, at that stage I was overweight, pretty, pretty massively overweight um, and was fine, really struggling with my body confidence and my self-confidence as well because of that. 
most fascinating story. I think, did, what pulled you out? Like what, after that time there where it was just so difficult, you saw your, I didn't know you had a twin brother that could only imagine it's almost like you in a mirror, but not you at all, you know, like I can't even imagine. What, how did you build yourself up from? How do you even, how do people face these tough times? Well, it all revolves around my brother. Um, Weirdly, I was in such a downturn at that time where it just didn't seem like I could ever be open about who I was externally. Like, after what I'd experienced in school, I didn't want to come out again. Um, And it was really causing a huge impact on my life because if I couldn't be who I really was, I could never live the proper life that I wanted to live. Um, And even though my parents were good and my brother was good, I I wasn't feeling it. So I... um, I was affected by bulimia for a long time because without any sport or physical activity, I had no other way of keeping fit. Um, And what I saw of what the average gay person in Melbourne was like, they were always fit, they were always healthy. Um, I wanted to be like that. And the easiest way, again, that I could find that that would happen was by me basically um, having bulimia or by me really affecting myself and how I ate. Um, and my twin brother saw this, and I remember first year of university, he kind of came up to me and he's like, look, we're going for a drive, and I remember getting in his car. He was an an avid basketball player, so he used to play basketball on Friday nights with his friends um, from high school still, and I knew them. I was pretty friendly with them. I never would have wanted to play with them um, just because I didn't want to be back on a sports field. I forgot how to play all sports, Um, but he kind of got me into his car and he said, we're going for a drive, I saw two basketball uniforms in the back and I freaked out instantly, but it all seemed okay. He made me comfortable. We drove to the basketball stadium and we get out of the car and he's like, all right, we're playing basketball. And I remember for me thinking that, oh God, I'm about to walk onto a court with 10 people playing basketball. I was freaking out. But as soon as I walked in, I saw five familiar faces on the court. I saw my partner who was in the crowd, which I didn't know he was going to be there. I mean, that was a shock to me that my brother had, had invited him. Um, and I saw five really cool people that just wanted me to play. And I remember getting kind of my brother giving me the bravery to play. I didn't play the whole game. I played maybe half of it intermittently. Um, and we played that game and we lost. Um, and it was probably all my fault, but nobody cared. And for me, that was that real shift. That was that, that shifting moment for me where I'd come from such negative experiences in sport to now having a positive one. And that positive experience is what fast-tracked me to wanting to make a difference for other people who didn't have brothers like I did. Your brother sounds like someone... I'm sorry, I'm just so taken aback. Your brother sounds like someone who is just so... I think the people that we love, the people who are closest to us, they obviously care so much. But when you see someone going through something so intense and it's, you know, it's like, what do you even do? I think the fact, well, I can say is the best words about your brother, the fact that he just saw that and thought, no, there's got to be a better way. I've got to show him that it's great on the court and that, you know, it doesn't have to be as bad as he remembers. Because of course you grew up together. He would have seen you struggle. What do you think after that day on the court, what were some of the first things that you did work to work towards that vision that you had? Did you have the vision then or was it just you started playing more? Um, I, I started playing more. There was really no vision there. I, I thought that my case, as I said, I knew nobody else who was gay. I thought my case was very insular. I didn't think that other people would have gone through what I went through. 
Um, as I finished one of my university degrees, I became a counsellor and I worked pretty significantly with LGBTI youth, um, which is just where I fell, where my personal experience was, where, my, where I wanted to be. Um, working more and more with LGBTI youth, I kept hearing the same thing. And my story wasn't insular, it was so common, it was commonplace. Um, looked into the research, heard the anecdotal stories, looked into evidence base and just found that, God, this is not being tackled. Um, 87% of young, gay, uh, young male gay youth do not come out in a sports club. So almost 9 out of 10 gay male youth will not be out in a sports club because they don't feel comfortable. 75% of, of lesbian women are the same. Um, we know that about 98% of trans young people want to play sport but don't because they don't feel safe or comfortable enough to. And I think the evidence base plus the anecdotal stories that I heard, plus my own personal story, I knew that something had to change and something needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. What were some of those early steps you took to kind of bring this to fruition? You know, once you'd seen all the stats, you were like, well, this is crazy, someone has to do something. What did you do? Um, so it was really a lot of market research. It was so many coffees. I wanted to hear everybody's story that was in, that was in the space of LGBTI inclusion. I wanted to hear everything they've been through, had they tried in sport before, what had happened. We found out that approximately five years earlier to us starting, there had been a similar project that just did not work. It did not work, it did not get the support. Um, I wanted to research that and find out why that was. So I really wanted a really, really good market base. I wanted people, when I did launch something, I wanted them to know that I was launching it for the right reason. I wanted the LGBTI community to be involved, but I also wanted the sport community to be involved as well. So interesting. Was it just you at the time who was tackling this or...? No. So the first thing I did was my partner at the time um, was a researcher. So he was researching inclusion in sport. Weirdly, um, we both kind of how we became close was our love of sport, our love of inclusion. Um, But he was researching, was just about to publish his PhD. And his PhD's findings were about multiculturalism in sport and we found that multicultural inclusion was being dealt with in sport fairly well, um, but even where he was researching, anecdotal evidence showed that the words fag, poof and homo were said more than any other type of racist comments, um, and it was never pulled up on. So he wanted to join in, um, and we wanted to kind of found this organisation together. Wow. So talk to us about how, when did, how long was that from that, day on the basketball court like how what was that a couple of years one year two three four three years three years Three years. I had to finish my uni course that was something that I wanted to do um and then I had to kind of work in that inclusion space work in counseling learn stories um and then I think it was every single story that I that I did learn from was another step in the direction to getting me there um and that's when we founded well that's when I founded my first organization which was called Proud to Play um which was in 2000 and 11, end of 2011, um, and that was really built around youth inclusion in sport. Fascinating. So I want to dive a bit, before we dive into Proud to Play, because I'm so interested to hear about that, I want to dive a bit deeper into the, the steps you took to get yourself back onto that basketball court or to back onto the field during that type of, I think so many of us go not obviously through the, you know, the same level of what you experience, but there are times where we find we go through really challenging times in our lives, you know, and, you know, whether it's 
whatever it may be, whether it's we feel like we're not accepted by our friends, whether we feel like we, we don't fit in anywhere, you know, and sometimes that stops us, as it did you, from doing the things we actually want to do. What advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe want to go out there and start that project or that side hustle or that business, but they're just so afraid about what everyone around them is going to say? Great question. I think for me, it was my mental health was really affected and I had to realise first and foremost that it was affected. Um, And it was me studying psychology that helped me realise, look, I need to... It's almost that thing where you're in an aeroplane and you have to put your your seatbelt... No, sorry, your air mask on before somebody else's. It's that thing where I had to realise, oh, my goodness, I'm having difficulties right now and I need to tackle them. I need to book myself in to go see a psychologist. I need to talk to somebody. I need to talk to my family and I need to open up. Um, I was finding that because I was being so insular about my own problems and not telling anybody anything, well, that didn't help me in the long run. So it was when I started opening up. Um, I met my my partner then, my partner at the time then, um, opened up to him, got to know his story, opened up to other people that I was talking to, got to know their stories. They were all steps to making me better as well. Um, I really did have to see somebody, and I think it's so important that especially young men in Australia know that you need to see somebody if you have to, um, and you need to admit to yourself first that you're having problems and go and seek out that help that you need. Because if I was never to do that, I wouldn't have been able to go to the next step and found an organisation or start helping other people because I wasn't helping myself. So true. Why do you think so many of us don't help ourselves? We don't know how to. We don't know how to. We're scared that we will look weak. Um, So many of us, especially as founders, we have this founder syndrome where we always need to look so strong. We always need to look like we're always in charge. We're always on our emails. We're always working. Um, I think one of the most common things I hear from other founders is, oh, I didn't sleep last night. It's like, mate, don't say you didn't sleep last night. You need to sleep because what's going to happen is you're, you're going to fail. You're going to fail yourself, your body, and you're never going to be able to work as effectively as what you want to. Um, I think it really is about looking so weak in this community, um, which is why some of us just hide how we're feeling. But I really want to change that narrative and get everybody to open up and talk to one another because there's so many people. I work in a share space and there's so many other people in that in that area who all have the same problems and we're all doing this very similar things. So once we work together and talk about how we're feeling, it makes a huge difference. How do we find our tribe of people that we can confide in, that we can talk to? You know, you're lucky that in where you work now, it's you've got this community around you. For those of us who are solo founders or even for those of us who are just struggling with something in our lives right now, how can we build that network? LinkedIn. <laughs> I love me some LinkedIn. I mean, so you, you message me on LinkedIn. I, I reckon I get so many messages on LinkedIn a week just from random people being like, do you want to catch up for a coffee? We should chat. I mean, I might reply to only some of them <laughs> because they keep, uh, yeah, <laughs> they keep coming. But I, I do. I'd make time to to meet with people, to have those coffees, um, to meet with like-minded people in in the area that I'm working in or that I want to work in. I mean, the first meeting that I ever had when I came up with the idea of Proud to Play was with somebody who ran Australia's largest LGBTI organisation because I, I messaged them and I said, can we have a coffee? And they said yes. Um, and it was just reaching out and just being like, hey, I want to meet you. And we're still close today. We still talk about everything that's currently going on. Um, help on both of the growth processes now that I'm in a good stage to help them as well as them helping me. And it just you just need to reach out and see. I think we're so afraid to ask questions. 
Um, and a question is, can, I, can we have a coffee? Or do, can you be my mentor? Um, mentoring is so important to have a mentor that's there, that's ready to help you out. And just by asking those questions, you can really find that kind of salvation that you need in talking to somebody else with like-minded experiences. I could not agree more. And I think that building that community around you, whether it's three people or five or one, you know, who, who kind of you can speak to about what you're going through, whether it's building a business, whether it's a tough time at, at work or whatever, or in your personal life, I think it's so important. And I think, yeah, so many of us think it's so much harder than it is. Yeah. You know, so many people are like, how do you get these cool people on your podcast? Yeah. And I'm like, because I literally ask, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's all I do. Um, but what, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who perhaps are a little bit, nervous about the result you know they've maybe never reached out to anyone before they're they're super scared about sharing their idea or what they're going through I wonder if you found this as well but for me what really gave me the confidence to be able to talk to people and to ask questions is being told no so many times Mm. I got (laughs) shut down so many times that I kind of became like it it was like oh all right well all I can expect is a no and I've had 5,000 no's before so Let's get another no. And then you get one yes and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> Who do I talk to? But I, I think for me it was just asking people to keep getting no's and then I was like, well, I'm just going to keep asking. I'm, I'm annoying. I'm going to keep being annoying and asking people to, to meet up, to have a coffee, for help, to mentor me, um, for money, like whatever it is. I, I'm going to keep asking because uh, the worst they can say is no. And as long as they say it in the right way and don't offend them, then I, I won't get in trouble. And also that I hope that I will gain their respect for asking the question. Bingo. So true. So true. Oh, I love this, James. Look, I want to dive into that first um, organisation you started so proud to play. So talk to us a little bit about that. I think it was in 2016 that you launched that. Um, you know, what were some of the first... Firstly, what is what was it? And then what were some of the first steps you took to get it off the ground? Yeah, so we formally launched in 2016, but the idea was around for three years before that, yeah. Okay. It, it was there. I wanted a big backstory. I, I wanted to be ready to take on because the environment was crazy. Um, at that stage, we were starting to talk about kind of the yes debate about marriage equality, we were starting to see a lot of things from the Australian Christian Lobby and other like-minded organisations to them kind of denigrating LGBTI people, saying that they, they didn't deserve to exist and that it wasn't real. We started to see a lot more about um, kind of religious freedom acts coming out. It was, it was a really tough time. It still is um, for a lot of young LGBTI people. But at that time, we knew that we had to launch and it was a really, really good time too. The market was right. Um, we were in a, a real place where the yes vote was just about to kind of be launched, be announced, or there was about to be kind of a lot of conversation about it. So we knew we were in a really good spot there to show another way to get LGBTI young people really excited, really involved, feeling happy, getting the social, emotional, kind of physical attributes that only sport can give them. We wanted to make sure that we launched at that stage. So where it was a project beforehand, a project researching kind of talking to a few sporting organisations about why it's important they include LGBTI people in their inclusion policy, it then became an organisation. We knew that it was that time that we're like, okay, let's do this. Um, And we founded the organisation on three main points. We wanted to increase opportunities for young LGBTI people to play sport, um, especially with their friends and peers, like me with my twin brother. My twin brother isn't gay, but I wanted to play sport with him. So we wanted to give LGBTI people that opportunity. We knew that a lot of them left sport like I did. 
um, between the ages of 14 and 18. So we wanted to make sure that we were teaching them the basics of sport again. Um, and we wanted to make sure that there were sporting clubs around um, Victoria who really wanted to take LGBTI people on board to train them and then to invest in them to get involved in their teams and just be like everybody else. But they needed to put through that first energy. That was the first step. The second step was really we wanted to make sure that policy and that um, the governance in sporting associations was strong. We wanted to make sure that if we were getting LGBTI people involved, there was anti-vilification policies that said, don't say gay, don't say homo. Treat lesbians with respect. Not every single woman who comes into your sport is a lesbian player, which is such a thought that a lot of these sporting clubs have. We wanted them to, to know the background story behind LGBTI inclusion, to make sure that they were committed to it on not just a club level, but on the whole entity level as well. We wanted it to be a cultural shift. Um, and then the third was volunteering. We knew that LGBTI people were not volunteering in sporting clubs. We wanted them to be at the Bunnings barbecues. Yes. We wanted to be at those sausage sizzles, <laughs> cooking up the sausages, raising money, taking money at, at, at the bar, whatever it is in a sporting club. We wanted to be um, involved them somehow. We wanted the two mums to go down with their child and volunteer at the club just like every other mum or dad or parent could. Um, so they were the three main aspects that we wanted to work on, and that's when we launched the organisation, on those three principles. Huge. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. How did that... Talk to us about some of those early challenges of actually when you launched... Oh, my God, so many. So many. <laughs> there always is. <laughs> so many challenges. Oh, goodness. Um, this, my rhetoric around, like, mental health and wellbeing with founders has changed so much since that first startup yeah. because... I think I did everything wrong. <laughs> and we, we all do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was by doing everything wrong, I learned yeah. and could do the right things afterwards. <laughs> um, the biggest barrier to me, even still to, to, the, to this day, but even more so then, was my age. Um, I was, what, 23, 22? And it was just like, why is this 22-year-old coming in to speak to the CEO of Cricket Australia? They're just like, what, what is this? Like, why... You, you, oh, good, good work. Like, like a pat on the back, like, good work. Yeah. It's like, no, my lived experience has helped me to this place where I can confidently come in and talk to you and want to hear. The other thing was LGBTI people at that time were so not invested in sport um, and government wasn't invested in sport. There was no such... When we kind of started Proud to Play, no real government investment had been made into LGBTI inclusion in sport. Um, and it wasn't even part of the structure of the sporting associations for LGBTI inclusion. Um, that might sound pretty, like, normal, like, oh, why would it be part of it? Everybody's just included as they are. But no, that's not the truth. The truth is we need to give um, minority populations sometimes more, more benefit. We need to write them into our structures. We need to make sure that our governance is there for them to be included and involved. Um, they really were working on women in sport, which is awesome. They were working on Indigenous inclusion in sport. They were working on um, kind of newly arrived refugees inclusion in sport, and they were working on cold communities, so culturally and linguistically diverse community inclusion, but LGBTI was never included in that. So we needed to make sure, first and foremost, that we were written in basically the government laws of sport inclusion that, that, that LGBTI inclusion was important. Um, so one of the first things we did was rally government wow. <laughs> <laughs> to change to change what their framework looked like to make sure because we knew we were not going to get funding 
unless government had said in their framework that LGBTI inclusion was a priority area. And that took so long. And it, again, a lot of coffees, um, a lot of reaching out on, it wasn't even LinkedIn then, LinkedIn wasn't big then. It was a lot of reaching out over email, trying to get emails from emails from emails. Um, a lot of introducing myself at networking events <laughs> to people that I probably shouldn't have been introducing <laughs> myself to um, and trying to get them on board to just listen to us and have a coffee. Because I knew that if I could get somebody in a room having a coffee, I could get them across to hearing more from us. I knew that all I had to do was share some stats that they, that they didn't know of um, and talk about the suicidality rates of LGBTI young people for them to get involved in what we were doing. Um, and that's really what the process was. But it was breaking that barrier of a 23-year-old kid talking to them, firstly, breaking the barrier of a gay kid who was talking about sport inclusion for LGBTI people, which they'd never heard of talking to them. So breaking those two barriers and then getting them involved to have a coffee. So that, that was really, really hard process. Um, and once we got the hang of that and could get the first couple of people in who were really invested in what we had to say, then they started inviting other people into the conversation. And that's when it started growing. But that was a year before that happened. I love that you share that with us because I think so many of us just see these awesome organisations and businesses and founders and, and whatever it is and just think, oh, like, that person did it because it's that person, you know, but it's like they have no idea that it does, it takes grit, it takes grinding, it takes not even that persistence, you know. How do we develop persistence? It's, again, by getting shut down so many times. I think, I know it sounds really hard because it is so hard to get shut down those first few times. I mean, I was crying to mum and dad every time that somebody would shoot me down and say, no, you don't, and we're not going to have a meeting this time. Or I'd get an email back saying, sorry, this is in our priority area right now. I'd always go to mum and dad and be so upset, but they'd be like, keep going, keep going. What's the worst that can happen? You'll get another no. Okay, cool. So I did. Um, what can I teach to other people? It is kind of about almost putting it to one side when people say no and keep trying because somebody will say yes. You will find your kind of, your mentor in the area that you're working who will say yes and be that first inroad into starting where you want to be. Um, because it only takes one good ally who trusts you, um, who wants to get to hear you, who wants to get to know you, for them to start opening the doors to many more places. Huge, such great advice. So from there, you know, people started to buy in and it was after a lot of hustle mm -hmm. and, you know, all the struggle. You know, talk to us a little bit about the progression of Proud to Play and then how that fed into, you know, the launch of Pride Club mm -hmm. early last year. Yeah. So where we went with Proud to Play from there was we got involved with Cricket Australia, who launched us, wow. um, which was a really huge step. Again, it was meeting somebody who now weirdly works across from me in another startup um, and I'm supporting him and his startup, which is awesome. But it was speaking to him first. He's like, we're going to launch you. They launched us at the MCG in front of 200 of Sporting's elites. Um, it was us building a relationship with them so they could do that. But mostly it was about talking to our community. It was about going to LGBTI youth services, going to LGBTI clinics, meeting LGBTI young people all around Australia and hearing what they wanted and building our kind of our resume around that. So building what we did as a company around what they wanted us to do. 
um, which was really important for us because we wanted to make sure that we were having an impact. And we wanted to make sure we had anecdotal evidence to tell the government who was funding us or to tell corporates who were funding us. We wanted to make sure we could say to them, look, this is what young people want and this is what we're giving them. And then we always did evaluations, always did things that you need to do to make sure that your programs are working and they're working effectively. Um, what we found is we had a few sidesteps on the way as well. We knew that young LGBTI people was our priority area, but we knew that with governance and with policy, older LGBTI people were getting discriminated against the most. So when we did policy development for sporting associations, we made sure that we were focusing on all LGBTI people. And that really became our bread and butter is policy. We ended up writing policies for, or have written policies for 10 of the major state sporting organisations, four of the national sporting organisations. Um, we've worked on probably all policies that have come out to do with LGBTI inclusion, which we uh, talking about five years ago, there was not one. And now almost every sporting association will have one. Um, so we, we really worked on policy. That's what made us our money. And then what we spent our money on was sporting activities free of charge for LGBTI people. Um, so that's how we grew the organisation and then government wanted to come on board. We became government advisors. The more government advising you do, the more funding you get. So we were getting more funding to put on events um, and then we started running monthly events and we still do that today, run monthly events. We're still working on probably seven to ten different policies right at this moment. Um, I'm no longer working on them, which is great. Um, but we have an awesome team from there as well. Like, yes, it was a slow growth and... I wasn't paid for the first three years that I was working there. I was working part-time um, selling underwear at Bonds. Um, like, I was working part-time to make money so I could do what I loved. And then I was the first paid employee um, on a part-time salary and then hired somebody else on a full-time salary, even though I was working full-time, but hired somebody else on a full-time salary. And then from there, there's now five people working at Proud to Play. Um, I'd been there for... I've been working on Proud to Play since 2011, so forever, um, I felt like, and we got to a really good stage. We're in a sustainable model at the moment. We're funded by a lot of really awesome people. Um, we're working with some awesome people in the space with great partner organisations. And I have employees that I really think can really do more than I can in the organisation because I'm, after eight years, I'm starting to lose my touch in it. Um, but these young people, but plus these new people are coming in and really showing grit and they know what's next for this organisation. So um, they, I saw that it was a time to leave Proud to Play um, and as I saw that it was a time to leave Proud to Play, I was kind of tapped on the shoulder by, at that stage, Jason Ball, who was a pretty um, huge player in the LGBTI space and um, a few different sporting associations who tapped me on the shoulder and said, we want to make this concept of Pride Cup which started as one game in 2015, celebrating LGBTI inclusion and diversity. We want to make this concept a national concept um, because we see the growth that it can have. And basically they said to me, I was in a really good spot because they were like, we don't know anybody else who would have the knowledge of the LGBTI inclusion space that you have at the moment. Um, for me, it was a real toss up. Like, do I want to leave something that I'm used to and am doing really, really well at to go and try something from the base, those base roots again, like I'm talking about we needed to come up with an ABN, I, need, I needed to form the organisation out of nothing again, so do exactly what I'd done before for Proud to Play, but do it now for Pride Cup, um, and I needed to make it have a difference, I needed it to be different than what Proud to Play was, because it was, it was very different, but I needed people to not align me anymore with Proud to Play and align me with Pride Cup, 
Um, and that, that was a hard process, but it was something that I was so willing to do. And when I was asked to help out with that project, I said, I'll start on it a couple of days a week. And then I think a month in, I was like working on it every day because I started loving that new startup phase again that I'd missed so much um, by being in kind of like a, a, a grown organization. I was missing that startup phase. So um, after a few months, hired a new CEO for Proud to Play and trained them up and really got involved and threw myself into Pride Cup and started on this development process that me and Jason were working on every single day. Um, and that was really the first stages that were very similar to what it was with Proud to Play. It was relationship building. Oh my goodness, it's so cool to hear, just to hear all of this and to hear the transition. I think a question that comes to mind is, you know, when do we know when it's time to leave what we're comfortable and, and make that transition? I, th I think for me, um, it was when I no longer loved going in every day. Um, I loved the work that I was doing. I did. I loved the people I was working with. I no longer felt that huge urge to be there every day and to work so hard on that um, because I saw other people coming to the, to the organisation um, that I'd build, yeah, but they were building it so much better. Like I was watching what they were doing and I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I should have thought of that. But I was no longer thinking in that way. I was thinking in like a growth strategy way. I was thinking in like a sustainability way what, rather than in how can we grow up, what's the next thing we can do. Um, for me, it was really that stage where I was like, mm, I'm no longer loving what I'm doing. Um, and I got a tap on the shoulder and that was when I was like, okay, cool. This is a really great time to try something new. Mm. How important is loving what you do every day to you? Like how important is it? The most important thing. The most Why important thing. Um, because I would not, I'm not in it for the money or else I wouldn't be in the charity and not for profit space. I would have stayed in business development space, but I went into the charity and not for profit space. I need to love what I'm doing. I need to be able to see that we're making an impact and that we're making a difference, which helps me love what I'm doing, um, to be able to go in each and every day. Um, the money isn't a huge draw card because it's, it's the not for profit and charity space, but what is the huge draw card is seeing the change that's made. Um, for me, thinking back to Proud to Play, it was that first time we got the government framework changed was the huge step for me. With every time with Pride Cup, it's every day I go in and see a new sign up um, and be able to talk to a new sporting club and be able to see the influence that's being made. So I'm loving this stage of growth as well um, because it is a great stage of growth that I really, really missed. Mm. Oh, I'm so excited to see where Pride Cup goes with you steering it all. And I just, I love that, yeah, you've just been so real with us about the journey. And I think it's so cool to see. So look, James, as we come to the close of today's episode, you know, you've been doing this for better part of your whole life, <laughs> you know, dedicating yourself to create, creating greater diversity and inclusion in sport you know, for that you've been, not only have you built a phenomenal organisation and are building another one, but you've been named as Australian Community Leader of the Year and OFA 30 Under 30. Absolutely huge. One of my final questions is, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who want, who have big ambitions, you know, they've got something that they really want to do. They're just not too sure how to go about it, or maybe they just 
are lacking the courage. Yeah. What advice would you give? I mean, first step of advice that I give to any startup that I'm working with, and I get to work with a lot now being in um, an accelerator program and being a mentor there, the first step of advice that I give is ask questions. Ask questions to on LinkedIn to those people who you're really vibing with at the moment. You, you, you're seeing great organisations doing great things in similar areas, maybe a little bit different than what you're doing. Ask them questions. Meet up with them for a coffee. Get to know them. Um, they won't try and steal your IP, which is something that a lot of people are afraid of. They won't try and steal what you're doing. They, they won't make it a reality. They, they will want to help you. And if they don't, well, then they're assholes and they're, they're not the right people to be talking to but there's so many good people who have learnt so much that want to share that wisdom with others and asking questions is the most important thing um, having the self-confidence to ask questions is hard I totally get that and I understand that but you need to kind of get out of your own body and own self for a second and just ask it press the, the send button and then run away um, I've done that um, <laughs> run away and then come back and see if you get a response um, sometimes you won't get a response. Sometimes you will. It won't be what you want. Then there's those really unicorn times where you will get the right response and somebody will want to help you. And I promise you that asking those questions, even if you do get no's, will be an, you'll get an awesome experience out of it because you'll learn for the next time or you'll meet somebody that you really want to meet and you'll get to talk to them about what they're doing and learn from them. You don't always have to reinvent the wheel. You can use other organisations, other people to help leverage what you're doing and most of the time they will help you. Huge. Could not agree more. Look, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, James, for the phenomenal work you've done and that you're doing, for being a leader of our generation and for showing us that we can own who we are and more than that, we can then use that to impact so many other people. And so for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So look, our final question is how we finish all of our interviews here, here at the Peers to Peers podcast, and that is... What is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? The, the value for me is happiness. It is pursuing what I really want to do. And I, I didn't know when I was 10 that this is what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be a chef. Um, but as I grew up and as I, as I saw really the niche that I fit in and being able to do that each and every day just gives me happiness. It makes me feel awesome to go to work. And that's something that I know a lot of people don't experience. I love it. Jason, James, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Getting so confused. <laughs> James, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people learn more about Pride Cup? So if you just head to www.pridecup.org.au or follow Pride Cup Oz on any of the social media platforms. Love it. And for... Everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at 
The Peers Project. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. Peers.